We have to understand that God knows all, and he always works from the perspective of love. But love, by its nature, requires judgment. And so that's the reason we read in Scripture, and oftentimes we read about God's love, then we read about his judgment, and we think, how do they go together? You can't separate the two. Because the very fact that there is something called love, that means that there has to be some kind of requirement that is associated with it. And, of course, anyone who is disobedient to those requirements, then discipline has to come forth. And we'll be talking about that a little bit more in a minute. Every decision that we make, and we know this, every decision we make has consequences, whether for good or whether for evil. As believers, our decisions should be based on God's word. That's why I love the portion that says, let God be true and every man a liar. Because it's not a matter of, well, this is what I believe, this is what they believe, this is what you should believe. It's a matter of, what does God's word say? This is the word of God to man. The Bible, my friends, is probably one of the most amazing, it's not probably, it is the most amazing book you'll ever put in your hands. Do you know it's still the number one bestseller in the world? The Bible is. still is. And the reason it's such an amazing book is because it really is the word of God to man. It's his truth. And what we read in here, we can have confidence in. And people say, well, how do you know it's so true? Well, one of the things is prophecy. There's, there is no other religious book in the world that has prophecy in it. Whether you're going to the writings of Confucius or the Bhagavad Gita, or you're going to the Quran or whatever, none of them have prophecy in it. And the Bible is one-third prophecy. Well, what's the big deal about that? Well, here's the big deal. If I tell you something is going to happen and it doesn't happen, then that makes me a, a false prophet or a liar, right? I said this is going to happen. It didn't happen. Where if I tell you something is going to happen and it happens, and I tell you over and over again something's going to happen and it happens, then you start thinking, I believe this guy. Well, the Bible tells us way in advance what's going to happen thousands of years in advance, and it comes to fruition right to the letter, right to the point that the Bible you know, gives us. That helps us to realize this is the Word of God. This isn't just some fictitious book. And one of the things we have in the day in which we live right now is Israel. How can anyone look and see Israel as a nation you know, you have Jerusalem now recognizes its capital. Everything that the Bible said would occur before the Lord comes back for his church. I mean, it's just absolutely amazing. The Bible is amazing. And even, and I don't have time to get into, uh, you know, all these things. But even in the areas of science, the Bible isn't a science book, but it deals with science. And every area of science that it deals with is 100% accurate. It's not a history book, but it has history in it. And every aspect of history has come to... It, it is absolutely true. Just like Pontius Pilate. You know, the Bible, you know who Pontius Pilate is. We're coming up onto Easter. Well, you have scholars that said Pontius Pilate never lived. There's absolutely no record that Pontius Pilate was ever procurator or governor of Judea. He never, he never even existed or lived. Well, the reason was is because Pontius Pilate came in disfavor of Rome, and one of the things that Rome did as a form of punishment was to remove any record of that person's existence. 
And so there is no record of Pontius Pilate's existence until an earthquake came in the 50s and it overturned an old theater seat in Jerusalem and on it was a tribute to Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea. The point I'm making is the Bible is always true. You know, what about the tribe of the Hittites? So, oh, well, the archaeologists told us the tribe of the Hittites never existed. And then finally, the tribe of the Hittites, their remains, and, and um, not only of the physical people, but of their culture, were found right in the very place the Bible said that they existed. As a matter of fact, there are a group of archaeologists now that call themselves biblical archaeologists. Not that they're believers, that they, but they believe the Bible is a great resource in giving them information of where these different areas might be according to what the Word of God says. They can go there and dig them up. And so anyway, the Bible, my friends, is the most amazing book in the world. And what a joy and pleasure it is to be able to read it. Because everything that is necessary, Peter tells us, for life and godliness is found in our knowledge of him. You know, unbelievers go to all these different sources for help. And, and that's all they have, and that's fine. But for we as believers, we go to the Lord. Do I need answers? I go to the Lord. You know, it's, it's wonderful to talk things over with friends and companions and, and to encourage one another in the Word of God. But all we need is Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. We know that song. Now... Um, you know, I started off here by saying um, every decision we make has consequences for good or for evil. We know that. And, uh, and that's why I mentioned the fact that it's based on God's word, let God be true and every man a liar. By the way, if you take notes, that's found in Romans 3, 4, Romans 3, 4. So now we're picking up in Exodus 32, verses 19 through 35. So it was, as soon as he came near the camp, Moses coming down from Mount Sinai. Remember we started this last week and Joshua thought it was the sound of war in the camp and, and Moses said, no, it's, 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 what it is, it's a big party going on. Uh, okay, so anyway, so it was, as soon as they came near the camp, they saw the calf and the dancing. Now historians tell us when it talks about the fact that they discarded, they, they were dancing in a very pagan way. They were drunk, and they were dancing naked. I mean, this was a debauchery that was going on when Moses came near the camp. So Moses' anger became hot, and he cast the tablets out of his hands, and he broke them at the foot of the mountain. Now, do you understand, Moses was up on this mountain for 40 days receiving the law of God for the men and women who were in the camp. Now, we have to remember what the men and women of the camp said to Moses before he went up. Remember what they said? You go to God, and whatever God tells you, we'll do it. And Moses promised them he would go up and get the law from God, and he would come down and give it to the people. And so he comes down... And here are these people who, say, who are saying, whatever God says, we'll do it. And they're having a huge party. It was debauchery. That's how, how quickly they turned from the Lord. Oh, we'll do whatever he says. Verse 20. So then Moses, then he took the calf, which they had made. He burned it in a fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the children of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, 
What did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? So Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people, that they are, that they are sent on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods that shall, be, that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, in other words, they, they know he was the one who did it. They know it. Um, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, Whoever has any gold, let them, uh, let them break it off. So they gave it to me, and I cast it into the fire, and this calf came out. It's interesting. Some translations, they, uh, Aaron actually says, I threw the gold in the fire, and this, ca- this calf jumped out. All of a sudden, wow, <laughs> magic, you know. Now, uh, when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them, to their shame among their enemies, then Moses stood at the entrance of the camp, and he said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. This is one of those very difficult parts to understand, especially when, we're, when unbelievers read these portions of Scripture. Uh, come to me, and all the sons of Levi gathered uh, themselves together to him. And we'll find out a little bit later, this is why the tribe of Levi was set apart as those who were servants of the Lord. They were, you know, the priests, and they were the ones who attended the temple and the sacrifices and so forth. And also, when they went into the promised land, the Levites were the only tribe who weren't given a parcel of land because the the Lord God was their reward. Verse 27, And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from the entrance to entrance throughout the camp and let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Now, we're not sure exactly how large the group was that came out of Egypt, but we think it was somewhere around 3.2 million people. You know, so often we, we think of it as because we've seen, um, you know, uh, Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments, and we think of it as being, you know, maybe 10, 15,000 came out. Well, when you look at all the numbers of the fighting men that were given, and then you consider there were at least that many uh, women, and there were probably three times that many children. And then you consider the mixed multitude that came out with them, those who weren't Israelites but believed God. We're looking at a huge number of people. And so there were about 3,000 men of the people who fell that day. Then Moses said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord, that he may bestow on you a blessing this day. For every man has opposed his son and his brother. So Moses is saying, because you took this stand of obedience, even to the point of putting to death those who were rebellious, you're going to be rewarded. Verse 30, Now it came to pass in the next day that Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, so now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made themselves a god of gold. Now notice when Moses is talking about the great sin they've committed, he's not mentioning their drunkenness, he's not mentioning their fornication, he's not mentioning their debauchery. What he's mentioning is the fact that they rebelled against God. All sin is rebellion against God. Now, 
And the Lord said to Moses, oh, let, me, let me move up here, I'm sorry. And, um, verse 32. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. And the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. In other words, God was saying, I'm not going to blot your name out because of the sin of the people. Every man, woman, and child is responsible for their own sin. And that's the point that is being made here. You can't atone for the sin of another. Jesus Christ is the only one who could atone for our sin, and he atoned for the sin of all people who call upon his name. But every person is responsible for their own sin. Now, therefore, go, lead the people to the place of which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel. Now, it's interesting, in your Bible, uh, at least it should be, angel is uh, a capital uh, A there, and it's malach in the Hebrew. And it's talking about one who intercedes from the Lord. And so many people think this angel that's going to follow them is Jesus Christ. Remember, the Scripture talks about the rock that followed them in the desert, who was Jesus Christ. And um, so, anyway, this angel who is leading him, that is the thought of many. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. In other words, I'm not going to punish you. I'm not going to punish other people. We are disciplined for our own sin. So the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron made. Now, notice... As soon as Moses came into the camp, the sin of the people, it was obvious. It wasn't like, well, I wonder what... It was obvious, the sin of the people. And also notice, it wasn't any particular type of sin that is spoken of that was committed here, but it was their unwillingness to surrender to the will of God. They turned their back on God. It wasn't God who brought us up out of Egypt... Make for us gods that brought us up out of. And so they were willing to fall back into all of their paganism. Because all sin is rebellion against God. The thing we have to understand is homosexuality is no worse than fornication. Sometimes we have a tendency to put labels on sin. Well, this is really sin. This is sin, but, you know, you kind of accept. Sin is sin. All sin separates us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so we have to realize that we must make sure that we don't put sin into different categories. But nevertheless, sin is sin. You know, we can, and that's one of the problems that we have with the political correctness of the world today. Is It's one thing you know, to say, well, you know, people who are you know, out fornicating and committing adultery, they're sinners. But if you have a man married to a man or a woman married to a woman, that's not sin because that's politically correct. No, that's homosexuality. And the Bible calls it sin. And it's one of the seven, we call it the seven deadly sins because there are two different places in the epistles that talk about sins that separate us from God, that keep us out of heaven. Now, the fact is, any sin the Lord can forgive and heal us of. Any sin. And, and, you know, we know over the years men and women who have been healed of homosexuality and, you know, follow the Lord and love Jesus and from every other kind of sin that you might imagine. Now, notice the Israelites had to drink the bitterness of their sin. God forgives our sin. He forgives our sin, Scripture tells us, to the uttermost. 
But the consequences of our sin we have to bear, right? And this is why it is so important for us to repent before it comes to a place that we have to suffer the consequences of our sin. Now, any of you who are believers, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There are those times that the Lord convicts us, that he points out and he shows us whatever our sin might be, and we have the opportunity to repent before we feel the full force of it. But there are other times for all of us, I'm sure, that our sin has found us out, where our sin has led to us experiencing the consequences of it. And there are some times that the consequence of our sin is what brings us to repentance. But nevertheless... God is so gracious and merciful that I believe he gives us warning after warning that we might be able to confess and repent. To, to repent means to turn around. In other words, go in a different direction of our sin, and we don't experience the consequence of it. Can you imagine if we experience the consequence of every sin we've ever committed? Man. But thankfully, God doesn't operate that way. God always operates out of love. In Proverbs 3.12 it says, For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as the father the son in whom he delights. And then in Hebrews 12.11, For no chastening seems to be joyful at the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline is an act of love. It's an act of love for your children. You know, you have parents who don't discipline their children at all, and their children just run amok and do whatever they want to do, and then when they become adults, society disciplines them by sending them to prison or whatever it might be. Well, we have to understand it's a whole lot better to discipline our children in love as they're growing up that they might be able to behave in a right and correct way than to let them do whatever they want and have society discipline them. And so God's word, of course, is very um, provocative here in the sense that it, it tells us if we love our children, we discipline them. I'm not talking about beating your children. I'm not talking about starving your children. Okay, you're not going to eat for five days because you didn't get good grades. I'm not talking about that kind of thing. I'm talking about discipline. You'd say to your child, if you do not eat all of your dinner, you're not going to have dessert. So your child does not eat all of his or her dinner. You don't spank them. You don't give them dessert. And then the next time, if a child wants dessert, they're going to eat all of their dinner. Except for asparagus. But anyway, um, I know a lot of people love it. <clears throat> now, Moses confronts his brother Aaron, and he asked him, he said, What did this people do to you that have brought, you to, uh, have brought so great a sin upon them? Now, notice when Moses confronts Aaron... And says, what did you do? Notice Aaron's first response. Well, Moses, it's your fault. He blames others. You went up in that mountain, and you're up there 40 days. What did you expect me to do? Then he blames the people. You know, these people are rebellious people. So in other words, Aaron was unwilling to receive any of the responsibility or any of the blame. He wanted to put it on others. 
And there's a lesson here for us. Brothers and sisters, accept the responsibility of your own sin. Accept it. You don't have to blame others. Now, here's the thing. Others might have contributed to your sin. Others might have had something to do with you falling to that sin. But here's the point. You're the one who sinned. You don't have to make excuses. You don't have to blame anyone else. Lord, it's me. Forgive me, a sinner. And you know what the amazing thing is? He does. And he takes your sin from you as far as the east is from the west, and he remembers them no more. You know, there was a, uh, a movement that went on some years ago, and it really it proved to, to do much more harm than good. And it even filtered into the church. And that movement was, we have to go back and remember all of our sin in order to confess it and to be forgiven by God. And so people were getting together, and you had you know, Christian counselors that were getting, meeting with people and saying, now you've got to go back and you've got to remember all of your past sin and you have to bring your sin up and then you can completely confess and repent of it. Your sin's already gone. As far as the east is from the west, the idea of bringing our sin back up and, and asking for forgiveness again is denying the word of God. You've already been forgiven. It's gone. Move on. Love Jesus. And... As we continue on here, there is no indication in Scripture that Aaron ever attempted to resist the sin that the people were falling into. You know, in James chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, Therefore, submit to God. Now listen, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Wow! It's pretty simple. The devil comes at you. No, I'm going to resist the devil, and I'm going to draw near to God. And the victory is yours. That sounds so simplistic. It is. And that's the problem. We try to make everything so complex. You know, either you're for me or you're against me. Scripture tells us that. And I love Aaron's excuse in verse 24. So he said, you know, they brought this gold to me, and, and I threw it in the fire. Man, I'll jump this golden calf. So I don't know how that happened. It's crazy. Well, of course, if you want to go back with me to chapter 32 and go to verse 4, chapter 32 and verse 4, and it says, And he, talking about Aaron, and he received the gold from, the hand, from their hand, the hand of the people, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Aaron lied, out and out lied to Moses because the people were putting pressure on him and he wanted the approval of men more than he wanted the approval of God. That's exactly what he did. And so Aaron turns around and he goes, you know, well, no, it wasn't my fault. No, 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 and these people. And I don't even know how this happened. This, you know, this golden calf just, he was a part of the whole thing. Here's what we have to understand. No matter how we think we might be able to deceive others, we can never deceive God. God knows all. He knows our heart. He knows, it tells us in Scripture, even the thought and intentions of our heart. And so to try to hide things from God is, is an exercise in futility. 
God knows everything. And so it's a lot better to say, Lord, I did it. Forgive me, Jesus. And he does. It is. It's a beautiful thing to know that. Now, um, Moses then gives, he gives a very compelling challenge here. It's a very difficult portion for us to understand. He says, whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. Now, this command to those who are on the Lord's side is very severe. He said, you come to me. And then he tells the Levites, he said, strap on your swords. And he said, let, let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. Whoa. What does that mean? How does that apply to us today? Well, there are some people who still think it applies to us today. If there's someone who disagrees with us, kill them. Not literally, but, you know, let's just destroy them. And that is not the way we handle it today. But the reality is that we have to put on the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And we can refute every argument every stronghold, everything that is brought up against the Word of God, it can be you know, slain by the sword of the Spirit, by the Word of God. And so how it applies to us today is in the church. The church of Jesus Christ is where he has put his Spirit. He puts it in the heart of each individual, right? You're born again in the Spirit. But when we come together collectively, the Spirit of God is among us to speak to us, to teach us, to encourage us. And so we have to realize that the church has to be a place where the purity of God's word is held up above everything else. And so therefore, if a false teaching comes into the church, it has to be dealt with. If you have someone coming into any church and they're teaching some false doctrine, they're a heretic. And it has to be rooted out. And that's how the application would apply. It's much more dangerous to have a heretic in the church than outside the church. you know that? Because a heretic in the church causes great danger. Let me give you a, a silly personal example. And most of you already know this. But last Tuesday, I had a surgery on my arm. I had to have a type of skin cancer removed. And it was a, a big hunk. It was about four and a half inches. It had to be taken out. But here's the thing. When my dermatologist called me and said, well, Frank, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I just got to tell you, it, it was uh, malignant. It was positive. The test was positive. I didn't say, yeah, okay, thanks. No problem. I'll live with it. <laughs> you know, that's fine. No big deal. I'm just going to go on and live life and do what I want to do. No, no. I said, get it out. Because I'd rather have them take it out with some healthy cells around it, you know, so my borders are safe and all that. I'd rather have them do that than to allow the cancer to spread and maybe lose my arm. And so we have to realize as believers, when sin is allowed in our churches and in our own heart, it has to be rooted out. Even if some healthy tissue has to be taken with it, it has to be rooted out. You know, um, Areas that we might deal with, we might have to go to an extreme with it. Like, it's, I don't drink alcohol because I'm a pastor, but I stopped drinking alcohol way before I became a pastor because I became addicted to it. And alcohol was ruling my life. And after I got saved, I tried to get rid of alcohol in small increments. 
Well, I'll tell you what, Lord. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm only going to drink beer. Because believe it or not, back in those days, I used to drink what were called boiler makers. I don't know if any of you are old enough to know what those are. It's a shot of whiskey and a, and, you know, a bottle of beer. And uh, it was nothing for me to go through a pint of whiskey and you know, a six-pack of, of beer at a time. No, no big deal. So I said, Lord, I'm just going to drink beer. So I just started drinking more beer. And then I said, okay, Lord, here's what I'm going to do now. I'm going to give you another opportunity to help me here. I'm only going to drink wine. Because I don't even like wine. And I became a wino. <laughs> and finally the Lord brought me to a place where I had to say, Lord, I'm drinking nothing. I had to cut the whole thing out. And maybe even take some healthy tissue with it in order to have the victory. Because here's the thing. The only thing that the Bible tells us is sin is drunkenness. I don't have a problem with someone who has a glass of wine, who has a bottle of beer. But, of course, drunkenness is the, is the problem. The reason I had to cut it all out is because I was a drunkard. You follow what I'm saying? And so whatever the sin might be that we're dealing with, I don't know what it is. Maybe there are things in our life that has to be cut right out. I remember we had a long period of time that we literally took the TV out of our house. We had no TV in our house. And uh, we cut it all out. And um, that didn't last. But anyway, uh, we, we did become a lot better in, in, in our viewing after that. But you understand the point that I'm trying to make here. And because it tells us in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, it says, uh, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? You allow a little sin in, and it's going to be like yeast and bread. It's just going to, you know, it's going to, you know, go through the whole loaf, through the whole lump of dough. And so it's better to just get it out. You know, that's the reason when with Passover coming, we're in that time of season for the uh, for the Jewish people. They have what's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and all leaven is removed from the house. They actually take feathers to go around and remove all the leaven because leaven was representative of sin. And we need to ask the Lord to root out the leaven in our heart. What is there, Lord, that's brewing, that's building up, that's you know, raising the whole lump of sin within me? Remove it, Lord, that I might have victory. And those who take a stand in opposition to sin and false teaching in favor of holiness, living for the Lord, will always be set apart by God to be his servants but not with the literal physical sword, but with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, Ephesians 6.17. And Moses, in this portion here, is such an example to us as well. In spite of all that the people did, in spite of all the sin they committed, in spite of all of their rebellion, what does he say? I'm going to go up and meet with the Lord and intercede for him. Well, just as willing as we might be to confront people with the sword of the Spirit, with the Word of God, to confront them with their sin, we have to be just as willing to intercede for them and when they repent, receive them completely back in. I remember a preacher years and years ago, and uh, we were at a, I think, a family camp, is where I heard it. And he said, you know, when um, you say to someone, you know, I'll promise I'll never do that again. 
And the person says, you said that 500 times. He said they never forgave you to begin with. Because the Bible says that we forgive and we forget. Sin's taken from us as far as the east is from the west. And if we throw up in a person's face, you know, well, you've, you've, you've said you're going to, you know, repent of that years ago and many, many times. You keep on. No, no. Every time we should have the attitude, praise God. Good. Good. You know, I used to tell people, I used to smoke too. I mean, you guys are getting such a bad view of me this morning. But anyway, you know, the funny thing is, I never started smoking until I got out of the army. Isn't that crazy? I only smoked maybe six or seven years. But, but anyway, I used to smoke a lot. I used to smoke two packs a day. And when I got saved, I realized I should quit smoking because the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and all that. And I used to tell people, to quit smoking is real easy. I quit every single Monday. Week after week, I quit every Monday. And I'm good until maybe Tuesday or Wednesday. The point I'm getting at, time after time after time, I went back to smoking. But then there was that one time, long, long time ago now, there was that one time that I quit and never went back. And that's the reason we're to have patience with one another, brothers and sisters, especially those we love the most. If they're desiring to change and to repent, believe them, encourage them. And if they fall, lift them up. You know, don't be... uh, uh. I love it that Moses went up and he interceded on behalf of the people. And like Moses and Christ, of course, who's our greatest example, we have to be willing to identify with the sin of the people. Jesus came in the flesh. Why? To identify with the sin of the people. He never sinned, but he identified with our flesh. Because the reality is, Scripture tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. If you come to me and say, you know, Pastor, I'm dealing with such and such a sin, and I go, oh, I can't believe it. (laughs) You know, you're going to be thinking, get me out of here as quick as I can. I'm so embarrassed. But if you come to me and say, you know, Pastor, I'm dealing with such and such sin, and I say, yeah, I know what that feels like. I'm identifying with you. And you you realize that I understand. And I can tell you how the Lord gave me victory. And that's encouragement. Isn't it? And that's the reason we have to be like Moses and have that willingness to have that understanding. In verse 33, of course, to me is very sobering. And uh, the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. What book is that? There's a book of life, and people say, do you fully understand the book of life? And I say to them, no. But there is a book of life mentioned in Scripture, and it's very sobering when we read about it. For instance, if you take notes, write these down in, in uh, Philippians 4.3. And the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life, and Paul is talking about other believers who are doing the work of the ministry. He says their names in the book of life. In Revelation 3.5. 
He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Book of life. Revelation 13a. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, talking about the Antichrist, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb uh, slain from the foundation of the world. So during the tribulation, there are going to be people who are saved. Their names are written in the book of life. But any in the world at the time of the tribulation when the Antichrist is having his rule, whose names aren't written in the book of life, will worship him. Just like we just read about worshiping the golden calf. Revelation 20, verse 15. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. I say it's pretty important to have your name written in the book of life. Revelation 22, 18 through 19. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life. There's an old hymn that probably most of you would not know. And uh, it's an old gospel hymn. There's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine, and it's mine. The white robe angels sing its glory. A sinner has come home. I can't carry a tune in a book. But the point is, when you're born again, your name is written in glory. You are in the book of life. And if you fall to this sin, you fall to that sin, your name is still written in the book of life. And that's why we're encouraged to confess and to repent of our sin. Because someone has fallen to sin, it doesn't mean that they don't believe. It doesn't mean that they're not regenerated. It doesn't mean that their name isn't written in the book of life. It just means they fell to sin. And that's why as believers we need to encourage them and to lift them up. Because the reality is, my dear friends... Until Jesus calls us out of this world in the rapture or in death, sin will be a continuous foe to your Holy Spirit, to the Holy Spirit that dwells within you, to your regenerated soul. It'll be a continuous confrontation. There's always that battle. I don't know if there's... I love the way my, my son, Pastor Frank Jr., puts it. He talks about sometimes in the morning when you wake up and you're laying there, he calls it the hours of self-loathing. And um, most of us uh, kind of smile when he says it because we understand it. How many times have we laid in bed in, either in the morning or the evening and you're thinking, oh, oh I, why don't I do Why well, I wish I, oh, God, how many, yeah. you know, and all these attitudes and thoughts and things that we do and, and um how many times have you wished that your mouth was sewn shut? Probably one of the things that I wish more than anything else when I'm in my, my hours of self-loathing is I wish I wouldn't have said this or that. And I'm not necessarily talking about anything that's horrible or blasphemous or anything like that. But sometimes I have to tell people everything I feel, everything I'm thinking. And maybe it's not necessary. You know what I'm saying? Father, we come before you in Jesus' name and we thank you for your word and, and the truth that we find in it. 
And even in difficult portions of Scripture like this, we find encouragement and we find direction. And I pray that you would help us to apply to our hearts and our lives everything that we've studied this morning. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And God bless you, my friends.